for the week of December 18th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome, clean tech enthusiasts and skeptics. Yes, skeptics are always welcome here, although it's mostly enthusiasts. I am your MC, Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in our nation's fair capital city of Washington, D.C. This week, we are discussing a story that epitomizes Washington politics the kerfuffle around the loan guarantee program. The man who ran the Department of Energy's loan office during the heady stimulus days is with us. And we will have a candid conversation with him about Solyndra, political bloviating in Congress, and the legacy of loan guarantees in his eyes. Then later in the show, we'll provide some context about SunPower's latest investment in home energy management and try to understand the global climate negotiations that just wrapped up in Peru. Of course, at the end of the show, we will try to tell you something you do not know. Here with me are some people that you should know very well by now. In New York, it is... uh, our co-host and clean energy investor, Jigger Shaw. Jigger, big news over your way. I saw that the governor and the health commissioner there in New York State officially banned fracking. Do you uh, fall on any side of that very contentious debate there in New York State? Yes, I like to drink water like many other people. So yes, I love that he banned fracking. <laughs> what has been the reaction there? Have there been any demonstrations or celebrations, or etc.? Just enormous gratitude. Well, uh, with me in Washington... No stranger to contentious political debates is Catherine Hamilton, a partner with 38 North Solutions. Catherine, how are you? I actually saw that last month your home state of Virginia approved limited fracking in uh, the George Washington National Forest, where it was previously banned. So sort of a different story in your home state. Yes, there's a shocker. Um, I'm just happy that Congress has finally finished all of its very hard work that it did uh, so diligently over the last couple of years. And the 113th has adjourned. And the 114th won't start till January. So uh, the city is once again free from Congress, although it is uh, it is not free of holiday tourists. <laughs> well, uh, let's meet our other guest, also in Washington, D.C. Jonathan Silver is the CEO of Green Bank Capital, and he is well known to many in the energy industry as the former executive director of the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office, which he led from 2009 until 2011. Jonathan, thanks for being here. Great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I just want to ask Catherine, how, how do you know whether Congress is in session or not in session these days? Um, <laughs> is there a punchline? Well, I know because Catherine's stress level is much lower on this podcast. There's yes. Some, wasn't, this, wasn't this the least uh, productive Congress, I think, in the history of, uh, of the nation? Hey, you know what? They passed a two-week extension of the production tax credit. So there you go. They can all go home happy. Yes. (laughs) All right. Speaking of Congress, I have a question from Congressman Daryl Issa's office, Jonathan. So now that you've been gone from DOE for a few years, maybe you can just tell us the truth. How many rides did the Solyndra executives give you on their private yacht to get that loan guarantee? (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm just kidding, obviously. Uh, So let's get into our conversation about the politics of loan guarantees, about why loan guarantees exist in the first place, and your perception of how the program is performing and has performed. But actually, maybe we could bring this back to an even more basic level and talk about the purpose that loan guarantees serve. So we have a, a really smart listenership here, and I'm guessing that the majority know how loan guarantees work. But step back for a minute and give us this give us an abbreviated history 
of why Congress established the program in the first place and how it was boosted by the stimulus package um, and, and what happened when you came in? Uh, sure. You can really nerd out on this. It's uh, because the history is uh, an interesting one, but a little convoluted. Uh, the initial uh, impetus for the program began with the Energy Policy Act of 2005 and was uh, subsequently uh, enhanced, if you will, by the uh, additional riders through the Energy Policy Act of 2007. But fundamentally, the loan program began historically with an effort to create uh, a low-cost way to provide credit sub- what the government calls credit subsidies and what we in the real world call loan loss reserves um, for nuclear power. Uh, at the same time, however, there was a, a vocal group uh, in Congress who felt that if nuclear power uh, uh, project developers were going to have access to uh, the government's balance sheet, then uh, clean energy uh, should as well. And so uh, when the initial uh, $18 billion or so was set aside for nuclear, another $18 billion was matched through what's called the 1703 program for uh, innovative new technologies in, in and around uh, clean energy. The challenge there, of course, was that, generally speaking, uh, nuclear power plants are built by companies with very large and robust balance sheets, not as true for um, clean energy companies, generally much smaller, much much uh, younger. And so not surprisingly, uh, not many companies were able to take advantage of the original 1703 program because they didn't have enough capital to essentially to self-reserve. With the Stimulus Act, um, some amendments to the to that a- act were uh, included, including what everybody now knows as 1705, which essentially expanded uh, the program to include uh, commercially ready or commercializable technologies, and maybe most importantly, provided for the federal government to uh, provide for uh, the uh, the capital reserves, if you will, the, the, the credit subsidies. So uh, the, the, most of the projects that could qualify uh, applied to uh, 1705 or migrated there from 1703. And so this was a Congress. This was a program that almost everyone in Congress rallied around. And in fact, after the stimulus package, when there was a lot more funding for the loan guarantee program, there were many lawmakers across the spectrum who were worried that money wasn't going out fast enough. So I think that's pretty important for people to remind. Oh, the pro- the program uh, uh, you know, had tremendous bipartisan support right up until the time it didn't. <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't mean that as a tautology, but uh, it really was. It was a bi- the, the uh, Energy Policy Act of 5, 7, and 7 were, uh, were very uh, bipartisan in nature. And of course, all of the projects that, that applied, applied generally with a strong bipartisan support from their uh, local congressional delegations as well. I promise that this conversation is not going to be all about Solyndra, but it's hard not to start with it. So what people don't know is that the application for Solyndra had been in the works for a couple of years under the Bush administration before your team picked it back up. Um, at the same time, as um, your team started working on this, there were some warning signs brewing out in the market. The company's production and installation costs were very high. Around the same time the loan closed, silicon prices were looking like they were coming down. Um, that impacted the selling point of this non-silicon thin film technology. What was the process of approving support for Solyndra? And in rep- retrospect, would you have made that same decision? 
Well, let me first begin by noting that Solyndra uh, and, and, and the capital uh, uh, deployed for the Solyndra project represented about 1.3% of the total loan portfolio. So all of the, what you refer to the kindly as kerfluffle, um, all of the kerfluffle was around 1.3% of the portfolio's investment. I think that's a, an important uh, fact not to lose sight of. Having said that, um, the loan had been approved and actually funded before any of us actually arrived uh, at the Department of Energy. So I can only give you sort of received history here. But generally, the, the application, the cylinder application had been in the works since about 2007 or eight, and was one of an original group of approximately 16 projects that began to work its way uh, through, the, through the process. Um, I should say that um, while unfortunately the investment was not successful and the overall portfolio was, certainly the technology that Solyndra was working on um, qualified for uh, the loan guarantee program. It was highly innovative at the time. And some of the things that people don't really know about this history here because it got so, so lost in it or so drowned out in all the political posturing was this was not really a startup per se. This was the most highly um, financed venture capital-backed uh, company in the history of venture capital at the time. Over a, billion, in a billion, yeah. Over a billion dollars of venture capital money went into this before a single dollar of federal money did. Um, and at the time the company um, failed, they were, go they were on track to do about $180 million of revenue. Uh, the revenue ramp rate over the three years prior to that was, if I recall correctly, sort of 0, 40, 120, 180. I mean, the, there was a considerable amount of interest uh, in, uh, in the technology. But as you correctly point out, silicon prices collapsed, which uh, you know, very few people foresaw, and, and the company ran into trouble, as did many companies um, in, in that sector during that time, and as many, many entrepreneurial companies in every sector always do. So, Jonathan, um, as this was happening um, and when Obama was elected, certainly the GOP um, made a lot of public statements about how they were going to basically refuse to do anything he wanted to have done. And they made good on that promise. Um, that said, so when Solyndra started happening and Daryl Issa and others kind of latched onto it, there's such there's such a positive narrative um, about the program generally, and what you just said about Solyndra didn't really seem to come out. How did DOE lose control of that narrative? It just it just seemed like it was getting beat up over and over and over by Congress. And how was that able to happen? Yeah, and it was somewhat slow to act in many ways. Um, well, that's a that's an interesting question uh, to which I'm not sure I have a perfect answer. Um, I think the most obvious answer, though, is that it, certainly as um, uh, those involved in, in the program and in the running of the program, we were highly constrained by what we were uh, able to say, um, both because there were uh, issues of confidentiality around uh, the company, and the, company and, and the companies that had applied, and by what we were permitted to say both by the department and, and uh, the administration, which appropriately led the um, uh, response, if you will, uh, to this effort, it's it, it is, in my opinion, disappointing because, as you as you I think correctly point out, Catherine, it's a hugely positive story. I'm sure you all saw that um, the Department of Energy issued an interim report a couple of weeks ago, 
which suggested that the loan portfolio is on track to turn a five to six billion dollar net profit when it uh, when it's all when all is said and done. The problem is, or the challenge at a macro level, is that uh, is the old adage, you know, uh, the losers lose before the winners win. In the investment business, we refer to that as the J curve, um, and that is that troubled investments typically run into trouble before. The better investments uh, are finished, succeed, and and compensate for uh, the weaker investments, and that is in fact exactly what has happened in this portfolio. Um, uh, but uh, for one reason or another, this one got a lot of attention. So, hey, Jonathan, you know, you and I agree on ninety nine point eight percent of uh, of the decisions in the loan guarantee program. So, I'm just going to pick on the zero point two percent. Um, but I'm curious whether you still think in retrospect that it was a good idea for so much of the money to be provided as loan guarantees to largely commercial projects like solar PV projects for Sun Edison, my old firm, or First Solar or SunPower. I would have said, Jigger, that we agree on 99.99% of things. I'm shocked to hear it's twice as large a gap. Let's get some disagreement here. <laughs> um you know, you got a couple of answers. You got to remember what the purpose of the uh, the policy purpose of this program was. And and by the way, although I just mentioned the fact that the program is financially successful, which was in fact what much of the yelling and screaming was about, nowhere in the legislation, the enabling does legislation, does it actually talk about um, this program turning a profit at all. In fact, as you all of you know, I'm sure Congress set aside ten billion dollars of loan loss reserves in anticipation of losses of the program. The real uh, impetus for the program uh, was uh, to uh, uh, bring uh, clean energy technologies more rapidly into the marketplace, to increase energy uh, security and energy independence, uh, and to create uh, jobs domestically, and in this case, in the, in the energy sector. Uh, so our goal, of course, was to uh, uh, underwrite and finance projects which did all of those things, and we did that, I think, as well as we possibly could. Well, let me, let me poke at that a little bit more, Jigger, because I get the sense that you're skeptical and you think that many of those projects would have been financed without government help. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think what happened was a lot of those projects were secured at $0.17 cents a kilowatt hour. And I think with the loan guarantee program, we created multiple hundreds of millions of dollars of extra profits for First Solar, Sun Power, and Sun Edison that they probably didn't deserve to make. Um, but because the loan guarantee was in place, they got money from Bank of America at 3 3 4% 4 interest. And, you know, and that all basically went up to the equity holder. Well, I don't know that I... This may be the 0.02% where we disagree, Jigger. I mean, first of all, um, these deals are structured so that the government is in a senior secured position. And, in, in, and as you now, as everyone can now see in... 98% you know, of the cases, uh, that's worked out extremely well. Uh, so there, there hasn't been any real exposure to uh, the U.S. taxpayer through the program. And in fact, there's been a profit. That's on the one hand. And on the other, um, if you go into the details of, of each of these loans, you'll see that they're highly structured and highly negotiated and that the debt to equity ratios uh, take into account uh, leverage returns. They are uh, stacked against uh, the 1603 credits. Uh, some of the some of the uh, companies that are you know uh, in in the news these days about getting 1603 credits ha have uh, agreements with us. Well, I should say with the Department of Energy 
that the 1603 credits go to repay the loans before they do anything else. So I'm not sure that um, the returns are either outside or outsized or unwarranted relative to the risk. Remember, at the time the program really, we got the program up and running in 9 and 10 principally and part of 11, you know, the economy was flat on its back. There was no capital for any of these kinds of projects. I do think, obviously, the industry has uh, gotten healthier and improved and grown, and no one's more, more thrilled about that than I am, I'm sure all of us together. But that wasn't the case when we were making these investments, and many of these, most of these transactions would not have been done at all if we hadn't underwritten them. So I want to talk about the reporting during the political circus around uh, Solyndra and other bankrupt companies. And you and I were having a conversation about the type of reporters who were covering um, the hearings, the congressional investigation, the background on loan guarantees in some of the bankruptcies. And many of them were political reporters, not business reporters. I'm just curious how you think that influenced the conversation here in Washington, the echo chamber. Well, I think it, it influenced it a lot. In fact, um, in the conversation you're referring to, uh, you referred to them as political reporters. I referred to them as investigative reporters. And, and from, from that follows the fact that if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, I think that despite a lot of effort in trying to educate folks following this story and reporting on it, um, the, the way loans are put together and, and, and structured finance and project finance are not easy topics. They're complex. I think uh, the folks reporting on this struggled in many cases to understand uh, how, you know, the business and the economics of, the, of these financings. And so uh, much of the reporting drifted into a he said, she said, or gotcha kind of journalism, which I'm afraid did a, some, something of a disservice to the public uh, who really would have benefited more, I think, from learning how these deals not only were put together, but why they were put together that way and how they were, how they were secured. Here we are four or five years you know, after the first a couple of loans were done, and 98% of them are, are successful, and the portfolio is, is you know, significantly profitable. So uh, it's unfortunate that uh, most people's initial exposure, and perhaps only exposure to it, came from such a highly, such an inaccurate description of what was actually being done. So, Jonathan, I spent a couple of weeks ago, I, I was meeting with Peter Davidson, the new head of the uh, loan program office, uh, and his team, and they have about $40 billion in remaining authority. They're, they're now going on the road to try to get people to apply for, for these loans and loan guarantees. And they're looking at, you know, trying to reeducate, trying to build back the hearts and minds of folks um, and trying to show them that, that this is successful just as, as, as it was um, without uh, running into the political buzzsaw. What do you think uh, moving forward they can do to really continue the success? Well, I think they've already done it. I th I've known Peter's, a, Peter's terrific, and he's terrific in that job. I've known Peter for 20 or 25 years. He's very, very competent, um, you know, knows this area well. I think he and Secretary Moniz and, uh, and others – you know, have uh, have done a very good job of simply relating the facts and telling the story um, without any spin, just with, you know, a as more and more data accumulates. And, you know, it's my hope that people uh, now are, are more familiar with the program and more familiar with the results. But 
it ought to be reinforced and maybe even morph into some kind of uh, permanent or semi-permanent energy infrastructure bank. Jigger, what do you think about that idea for morphing this into some sort of, sort of infrastructure bank? Do you think that's necessary? Absolutely. I mean, I've had conversations recently with DOE at the highest levels on exactly this point, and it's actually shocking to me how how DOE doesn't think strategically about any of this stuff. So, for instance, I had this conversation the other day about you have these reports coming out of this division and this division and this division about these technologies, which are largely figured out from a technology point of view, but not actually from a project finance point of view. They should be offering those projects up to the loan guarantee program and creating this type of sort of ecosystem and pathway by which we get there. But instead, they just sort of say, oh, we did it for Sunshot, but now we're sort of done. That's ex- Jigger is exact 100% right about that. In fact, the interesting thing about the Department of Energy is that it represents or embodies, if you will, the entire ecosystem, right? Because you start with projects coming out of ARPA-E, which are sort of bleeding edge, you have project and analysis coming out of NREL. You've got individual uh, agencies and offices working on things that cross the in- initial pilot or demonstration phase and then bring them all the way through to um, uh, commercial deployment or utility-scale deployment through something like the Loan Guarantee Program. Um, it really should not be thought of if as a clean energy uh, agency so much as it should be thought of as a financing support mechanism for all emerging energy technologies. I'm curious, as you listen to folks still talk about the program, you know, for example, Tennessee Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn said last month, what we have seen is incredible mismanagement. It's the poster child for crony capitalism. What, what is your reaction to that in terms of the legacy of the program? Do you think that the legacy of loan guarantees will ultimately Will it forever be tied to this handful of bankruptcies, or do you think a more rational view will prevail? Well, my response to that comment is that Marsha Blackburn doesn't know what she's talking about and doesn't really care that she doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, uh, the facts are are clear. Uh, the results are in. The program is a huge success, and I guess you can continue to to deny that, but I don't know what it gets you. Uh, except a little local airtime on your on, on the local nightly news. Um, what I would say is that uh, over time, facts generally will out, and uh, this program is demonstrably uh, a great success. It's disappointing to see it caught in this endless uh, spin cycle, uh, you know, of political rhetoric. Um, but so there, you know, there are many, many, many good and, and, and important projects and, and, uh, uh, government initiatives underway that are, 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 are similarly caught. So all I can really hope as a citizen is that, um, we start to tamp down the most egregious political language and try to get back to, um, some way of legislating that, that is, uh, you know, analytically rigorous and fact-based. Well, getting rid of Marsha Blackburn, who doesn't really believe in science, would be a start. But I think, I mean, I mean, if you just hear her comments on Ebola, I mean, it's absolutely absurd. But, you know, I, I guess I would say, though, Jonathan, my sense is, is that 
the Department of Energy really has done a poor job for a very long time of figuring out how to create this ecosystem. And I think when you think about the SunShot program in particular, combined heat and power, solar hot water, energy efficiency, really desperately need their own SunShot program. And uh, the loan guarantee program fits in there nicely. And my sense is you could actually broaden the political support of this program quite easily if you actually figured out a way, for instance, to do this for combined heat and power, which you know Denmark and Japan have done so well, but we haven't. I don't think Congress right now or the next Congress is going to want to pick those nece- those technologies necessarily, but I wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to pick ones that they particularly like Advanced and fossil, focus on those. Nuclear. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I think um, they, you know, their narrative is about, um, you know, what what technologies uh, benefit them and benefit their reelection campaigns. And so, I mean, I could see them, you know, using it, but in a slightly different way. Um, but it seems like the folks at DOE are on the right track with all of the criteria that they lay out for these um, projects, for these loans. And, you know, there, there are things like the California Energy Storage Mandate, for example, with that RFP. Those are sort of the perfect projects to apply for this funding because they're, you know, they're real projects. They're, they probably need some extra financing and, um, and the utility has a commitment to them. So that's the kind of the kind of thing that the loan guarantee is made for. And I could see I could see it continuing. And I think it's going to continue to be successful as long as it stays out of the uh, crosshairs of politics. Yeah, I've yet well, to hear the same outcry about uh, CCS, advanced fossil and, and nuclear. Right. I mean, to, to you know, to fur- further that point, eight billion of the 40 billion you're referring to is set aside specifically for advanced fossil projects. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. So I think you get a couple of those projects. You start, you know, changing some of the attitudes. I don't know. I think they would behoove them to just completely stay out of the political fray. I agree with all of that. I guess in in the defense of the department, uh, and I'm certainly not the department spokesman, but in defense of the department, that you know, this has not historically been its been its responsibility. There are approximately 115,000 people who work at DOE, and about 100,000 of those 115,000 are scientists in the national labs. This really hasn't been a, um, a heavy, heavily political age, uh, department for a very, very long time. And as energy becomes more important, uh, more part of our day-to-day uh, lives and more part of the day-to-day uh, political discussion, the, the department will have to develop certain skills and, and tools that it doesn't currently you know, have uh, perhaps as fully as it should. I agree with you. Well, uh, Jonathan Silver is the CEO of Green Bank Capital. He is also the former executive director of the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office. He joined us from Washington, D.C. It was a real pleasure. Enjoyed the conversation a lot. Thanks for being on, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, everybody. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks. All right, let's move along here. SunPower CEO Tom Werner thinks that in the next decade, nearly every solar system will be paired with storage in some way. As we heard in our live show last week, Jigger is pretty skeptical of that claim. But if that's SunPower's view of the world, how will it create the platform to integrate those systems together, connecting them to all the other up-and-coming smart technologies in the home, and then perhaps connecting those homes together? We got another hint at that strategy last week when SunPower announced it would invest $20 million in growth equity into Tendril, the Boulder, Colorado energy management software firm. SunPower will license Tendril's software, which helps consumers see their energy use in very detailed ways um, in the home, and utilities identify and aggregate demand reductions. Uh, Jigger, 
love to know what you think of this investment. I thought it was a great idea. I mean, but I think it it's a great idea for a different reason. I think when 2017 comes and the 30% tax credit for residential solar is, you know, sunset, I think what you will find is is that we will need to take 100% of the savings from the customer in year one to be able to make the solar projects cost-effective. Um, and that means providing them value-added services like Tendril, like energy efficiency, like a Nest thermostat, and other types of small-dollar items will be essential to providing value to the customer. So I think this is a step in the right direction to broaden the offerings to the residential sector so that we can actually save them a lot of money without giving them a lot of savings from the solar. So you just mean consuming more of the solar on site, uh, pairing it with um, consumption in the home? How exactly would that speed up the value or increase the value? Oh, yeah. No, I'm being far more basic than that. I find all of those conversations to frankly be boring because they're just completely unrealistic. Why? I think... Well, this notion that we're going to solve net metering by changing people's demand curve and turning the air conditioning on during the daytime to utilize their solar, I I could absolutely see that in commercial settings, and you can see Walmart doing that. But to suggest that you should do that in a residential setting when the house is empty because you have two breadwinners that are out of the house and the kids are in school just seems ridiculous. I think the better approach is to say that right now – People are paying 21 cents a kilowatt hour in California for power. Right now, we're offering them PPAs at 14 cents. Instead of offering them PPAs at 14 cents, we should offer them a PPA at the full 21 cents in 2017, but give them additional savings through Tendril and through Nest and through other small dollar energy efficiency items that you could pile on. And so they still see savings, but you've got enough cash flow in the PPA to finance it on the solar side. Mm. Yeah, and interestingly, um, Evo Stecklack, who is the general manager of residential and commercial energy solutions at SunPower, was the chief operating officer at Tendril. So he came out of that space. Um, and I, my sense is that one of their one of the big plays is that you can really get good qualified leads um, with this kind of deep segmentation that Tendril is doing, where they really get a lot of insight, not just into energy, but sort of a much more holistic look at the customer, where they're located, you know, very granular building modeling, where it's not necessarily turning it into, you know, energy efficiency, but it's really giving SunPower a lot more information to be able to target where they want to go so that they can become more efficient in their sales process. Totally agreed. Great customer acquisition tool and potentially good for geo-targeting for utilities, both on the demand reduction side and for uh, siting solar systems, which is also obviously a demand reduction opportunity. I actually disagree with you, Jigger. Like, I, I think that as we consider moving into a world with more time of use rates, rates that are maybe geographically targeted, customers are going to demand and need maybe more holistic packages like this to help shift demand and perhaps maximize system output. Um, and this, I mean, this has the potential to help the utility by perhaps matching on-site production with demand, help the consumer by allow them to consume more on site and maybe reduce fixed charges, the demand charges, as we've seen proposed, uh, or, you know, better, better utilized time of use rates. Um, so I think that solar companies, software companies, 
see this coming down the pike and are attempting to create the packages that may help consumers deal with that. Right, but I don't think we're saying different things. I think when you first asked me the question, you were saying, like most people do, hey, you know, like, don't you think that storage is going to be paired up with renewables in the future? And I think that I think the answer is no. I don't think that solar is going to be paired up with renewables, um, particularly solar at the residential level in the future. Um, I think that that you will find these small dollar items. I mean, if you've got a $15,000 solar project, it costs you an extra $300 to be able to set up Tendril and to control all these loads in the house. And absolutely, you can use Tendril to use time of use rates to save them even more money. But that Tendril thing paid for itself without the solar. The thing is, is that I think that those types of things are plentiful. You've got a lot of $800 uh, energy efficiency packages that include a little DAP, a little insulation, you know, and things like that. You've got a Nest thermostat you can put in. There's a lot of stuff like that that you could do that's $300 here, $800 there, added to the cost of a solar system. And the solar package becomes way more cost effective and way more relevant to the homeowner without adding storage. Uh, it's interesting to see how SunPower has evolved on this. They, they've experimented with a few pilots. They've got one with Ford, Nest, and Whirlpool to match solar with uh, EV charging, with AC use, appliance use, and they're using experimental time-of-use rates. Storage, still very much in the pilot stage, not, doesn't really seem to be a big part of what SunPower is trying to do. Very, very limited in Australia and you know a handful of houses in California. But um, SunPower clearly sees this as part of that broader shift as an energy service provider. And a lot of solar companies are working on similar offerings, I think Vivint Solar uses software from its parent company, Vivint. It's a home security company. Uh, Enphase has got its own smart home software. It's developing and um, adding on to Solar City has this new product. Uh, I think it was released this week called My Solar City, which shows more detailed usage in the home. Doesn't really appear to be that sophisticated compared to Tendril software, but it's, this is all part of a very consistent trend. Yeah. No, look, I think that this is going to happen in huge quantities. I mean, I think that what you find with these companies is either they can go through the electric utility company who does the sales work for them and basically just distributes their technology for them because the sales and marketing is just too expensive for them to do. Or you have the solar industry, which is the perfect carrier for their technologies. Those are the two options in front of all these companies. I think, you know, Nest is trying, for instance, to sell directly to homeowners, and that's actually one of the only bright spots that I've seen on the consumer side. But I'm not sure how well their smoke detectors are going, for instance. Yeah, I was talking to someone today about this, uh, as they described this tension on which side of the meter you're serving. And that was kind of what Tendril had been trying to figure out. So O-Power figured it out. They're on the utility side. We're providing service. You know, of course, the consumer can benefit, but it, the service is to the utility, really. And it seems that Tendril has evolved in such a way that they're kind of agnostic. As you said, Jigger, they can either be on the solar side and selling, you know, that's where you get the consumer, or they can be interfacing with the utility because they have such strong insight into consumers even beyond the energy use. In our final segment now, we are going to talk about the outcome of the UN climate negotiations that wrapped up earlier this month in Lima, Peru. This is the time of year when everyone disappointedly dissects what went wrong at the latest UN climate talks. And uh, actually, there was some 
optimism coming out of the talks this year. Some believe there is a path forward to establishing binding commitments next year in Paris. Let's look at what might open up that path. Catherine, what was your opinion? What did you gather for information on the outcome? There's been some squishy new language. Not surprising how squishy it is, but it's language that people think could possibly get 190 countries involved in talks to agree on targets next year. Yeah, so a little background was that every country is supposed to have this INDC, which is this intended nationally determined contributions to how they're going to kind of contribute in in these climate negotiations. So the cool thing, the interesting thing is the the US and China announced theirs ahead of time. So that really impacted the entire tone there. Um, Some of the kind of gnarly issues are, you know, how do you measure and track emissions? Who's responsible for what? Who pays for what? And one of the firewalls that seems to have been kind of broken down was this issue of, you know, there, there used to be this very bright line between the developed countries and the developing countries and who has, you know, the developed countries are the perpetrators and the developing countries are the victims and how common, do we deal with that? Common but differentiated responsibilities. Yes, exactly. And that's made, been made a little bit more nebulous so that everybody's really responsible. I had a long conversation with Lisa Jacobson, who's the president of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, and she was there. And, you know, she said, look, this stuff is messy. These multilateral talks are, it just takes time. Um, you know, you, you don't, it doesn't li- align completely with science and those goals, but at least there is, you know, you're getting some basic infrastructure to what this could look like, and you have to move somehow. She said she really does think they'll get a deal in Paris. It's expected. Um, but what's interesting, I'd love to hear Jigger's take on this, is that, you know, over all this time, that really technologies and markets are, and the business side is well ahead of the process. They're moving on. The cost for clean energy solutions is dropping so that this is almost lagging in in how it's being done. But it also means that the cost of having to deal with climate is also going down based on the technologies while it might be going up in other ways. Um, she thought that 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 was that was a good move. And I'd love to hear what Jigger thinks about the business side. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that I've fairly consistently said that these processes are hugely valuable. Um, I think that, you know, the chances of a deal that's binding, that people use from a top-down perspective that actually has ways to pummel people over the head if they don't meet their targets, the chances of that happening are zero. But the bottom line is, is that the government of India the week before Lima announced a $200 billion investment program where they were going to attract investors to the country for wind and solar projects between now and 2022. That happened the week before Lima. Separately, they said, look, we did not have the responsibility, nor did we really do anything to exacerbate it over the last 120 years on climate change. So we'll be damned if we're going to actually sign up for the same emissions reductions of the United States and the Western governments. I don't see the dissonance between that position. I think they want to use technology to leapfrog um, stuff like coal. But separately, they, they don't want the economic hardships of actually having to sign up to real metrics within this global framework. And I think both are you know, things that, that you know, are in harmony. 
Yeah, once you've taken the developing countries out of the space of being the victims, and it really opens them up to have an investment climate so that you're getting those new technologies into those countries, which which it's going to help them whether or not they're binding targets. And and this process is the cheapest way for us to influence these countries. The person who represents Honduras in these negotiations or Ecuador or any of these other places also has seven other jobs in their country, one of which is probably minister of the environment. The other one's probably minister of energy. The third one's probably their brother is the largest wind developer in the country. And so the fact that we are influencing them in the hallways, in the side events, in all these other meetings around how cost effective our technologies are is not lost. They are going back to their countries and then signing, signing in the case of Honduras, a 77 megawatt contract with Sun Edison. Yeah, but is that really happening because of the negotiations? The business yes. climate is influencing that change, not the people in the halls who are writing complex language and debating the and thus. I mean, that's not what influences this stuff. Pe countries are moving now and feeling like they can actually establish targets because the technologies are cheap enough. I don't think that the negotiations, that's not to take away from the importance of uh, multilateral negotiations, which I think have been largely ineffective, but still important. Uh, it's the business climate that's really Im impacting this. Right. But, but the thing is, is that I think the, the thing that I've learned over the years is that these institutions, whether it's the World Bank or the UN or the COP, basically are the best of the best that each of these countries have to offer. Those are the people who are offered up as negotiators on behalf of their country. That may not be true in France and the US, but it's certainly true in all these other developing countries. And what you find is, is that these processes are actually their university education. These people get educated about what technologies, what's here, what are the business models, how can this happen within these processes. It's not this 12-day negotiation. That's a sideshow. It's all of the side events that are there, but also they meet three times a year in smaller groups. And you'd be – like I've actually attended a lot of these with Morgan Bazilian, who's now at the World Bank, who used to represent – of uh, the government of Ireland, and the amount of information about the progress of clean energy technologies. And they're learning through this process at how much progress the business community has actually made. Yeah, and they're really interested in getting the non-state actors involved, the businesses to showcase what's going on on the ground. And there's that C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group that's highlighting activities in cities, getting mayors involved. I mean, there are a lot of ways you can do this um, to build the business and um, outside of the actual negotiation. So I will predict for you that in Paris, the big thing that will happen between Lima and Paris is that all of these negotiators will finally recognize that the $100 billion that they're seeking is already being invested every single year in developing countries. And we have three times that much amount of money to invest in those developing countries if they change their laws to attract um, a better business climate. All right, folks, uh, time to wrap up the show, and we will tell you something you do not know. And Catherine Hamilton gets to go first. Well, thank you. Well, um, my firm has a really great announcement. Uh, you've probably noticed over the course of the podcast that we, we dig not only into federal policy, but so much is going on in states. And certainly our firm has found that to be true. We do a ton of state work. So in order to better 
get to the states we need to get to, we decided to open up an office somewhere in the middle of the country. And my co-founder and partner, Jeff Kramer, decided to be the sacrificial lamb and move to Denver and open up a Western regional office for 38 North Solutions. So we just announced that last night. Poor lamb moving to Denver. I was going to say, sacrificial (laughs) lamb. Yeah. Yeah, he's sad. He reminds us pretty much constantly on Google Chat how sad he really is. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's great, and I and I feel like it's you know it's good for everybody. So, are you guys just setting up for EPA regs, or what kind of state level stuff are you doing? Yeah, well, EPA certainly is one of the big issues, but also just as states move on all these uh, various and sundry, you know, demand response, energy storage, all those disruptive technologies that we work in, uh, you know, states are acting. In fact, as you guys know, Arizona has a big vote today on solar. So that's the kind of thing we'll be able to sort of paratroop in on. Yeah. Jigger, surprise us. Tell us something we don't know. So I have to say that there's just so much good news that happened this week. Um, like, you know, I mean, things like the Rocky Mountain Institute merged with the Carbon War Room. So for the first time ever, people actually decided to combine two NGOs instead of creating another one. <laughs> um, so that was a good that was a good thing. I think, you know, in addition, obviously, to the governor banning fracking, Simpa Networks got a four million dollar loan out of OPIC to support um, you know, energy access for the poor in India, uh, which I thought was a huge uh, bellwether. And I think OPIC wants to do uh, 10 or 12 more deals that look like that. Um, and then I think the the big thing um, I just, you know, really wanted to to talk to folks about was really the, the tariffs. I mean, I think that the Department of Commerce came down with their tariff ruling, you know, really, really big uh, deal. And I think what's going to happen is, the Taiwanese loophole that folks were using for a long time to keep module prices low in the U.S. is going away on December 30th, and I think you're going to see um, higher module prices after that. Wait, I'm confused. You were just listing off good news, and then that one came in, and I'm assuming <laughs> know, that you think that's bad news, right? That's bad news, but you know, I had to have one, uh, uh, you know, thing. Well, and other good news, you know, Cuba and the U.S. are normalizing relations. I think that's good news. Uh, I'm sure that some listeners think that those tariffs are good news in the manufacturing community. So not everyone thinks they're bad news. Happy to happy to see all of those folks' uh, comments on our blog. But I <laughs> but I, I absolutely think it's bad news. And I think, you know, heading into the 2016 boom uh, that Green Tech Media has been predicting, I think you're going to see a module shortage in the United States. Um, I've got some follow-up stats from last week's conversation about solar and storage. So our storage analyst, Ravi Mangani, just put out a report today looking at the market growth for these hybrid systems in the U.S., and he found that by 2018, the market here in America is going to be worth about a billion dollars, pretty much uh, mostly on the commercial side, and that's up from $42 million today. By 2018, GTM Research thinks that about 1 in 10 new commercial solar customers are going to pair their installations with storage systems. Pretty big increase, but uh, of course we're pretty cautious on the residential side taking off in any big way soon. The, the economics just aren't there, and um, you know the things that are driving commercial systems, like demand charges mostly, um, are really the accelerator of this market. That is all for the show this week, folks. As usual, you can find our back episodes at greentechmedia.com/podcast. We will have links to stories we chatted about in the show notes. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Energy Gang. 
And be sure to follow Catherine Jigger and me individually as well. One more show of the year next week, and then we're off until the 7th of January. So stay tuned for our year-end wrap-up show next Wednesday. Catherine, we will talk to you then. Have a good week. Great. You too. Jigger, until next time, you have a good week as well. I will. Have a good weekend. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.